If you've been with us for a while, you know that we're in the book of Ephesians. Um, and our, our, the book of Ephesians is, is split into two halves. The first three chapters are about uh, kind of theology, like what God has done in Christ. It's almost an interpretation. It's, a, it's an understanding of everything that God has done in Christ. And then the second three chapters, four through six, are uh, what that means for us as we live practically uh, together in the church. And if you've been with us, you've noticed that, that Paul's moving in that direction. He's been doing a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology about what the church is, what the church means. And so we're going to be continuing that as we uh, uh, enter into the third chapter of Ephesians. And if you wouldn't mind standing and reading with me, you'll notice that uh, in the text I've made some adjustments to the King James. We'll talk, or New King James, we'll talk about those. But this is mostly just for smoothness. So stand and, and let's read together. Verse 8, God gave this grace to me, Paul, the least of all the saints of all God's people, that I should preach among the Gentiles, the Greeks, everybody who's not Jewish, the incomprehensible riches of Christ, and reveal to all, to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, the unfolding of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. To the intent that now the beautifully complex wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the powers and the authorities in the sky realms according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask you, Ephesians, Coast Bible Church, don't lose heart and my tribulations, my sufferings for you, because they are your glory. You may be seated. We're nearing the end of Paul's theology of the church. Um, in Christian tradition, we call this ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the Greek for, for church or assembly. The theology of the church, it's, a, it's an understanding of what the church is, what it is that we're doing here. Um, we're not, this isn't a social club. Uh, in fact, in the ancient Near East, what Christians did might have looked a lot like a social club. But it's not. Uh, it's not. It, um, it, it, it's something more profound, more cosmic. And we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. The first thing that we said about what the church is, is the church is a melting pot. The church is a place where people, it doesn't matter uh, what ethnicity or race you are. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your social location in the world, bottom or top, slave or free. It doesn't matter where you come from. You're melted together with all the other people in the church under Christ's lordship. That doesn't mean that, that this person gets to be just like them and everyone sort of ends up just like this person over here. No, it means we all mix and we all change as we become more conformed to the nature of Christ. We don't leave who we were behind, but we also don't hold on to it. And we let some of the things that we were before we came to the church fade the idea is that your identity is not balkanized. Your, your identity is not all the things that the world thinks that you ought to be identified by. Your gender, your orientations, your, your desires, your, your history, your, 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 your blood. Those aren't who you are, Paul says. When you come into the church, you're a new people, a melting pot people, a Christian people. And then last week, we talked about the fact that the church is not just a melting pot, it's also a temple, literally the place where God lives in the earth. In 70 AD, uh, the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple for the last time. 
until the end of days. That temple was the place where God had promised to live, but, but the Jews had failed to um, make it right in their hearts. And so what God did in Christ is he came and he brought his spirit so that wherever the church is, that's where God lives. This is God's home. And in this place, God dwells with us wherever we are. So this melting pot temple, what's the point? A very strange way to go about things, God. Why? To what purpose? Why does God do this? Why make the melting pot temple? Today we're going to visit three elements that make up the reason for this melting pot temple. And really it comes down to the church's mission. The mission of the melting melting pot temple. As we go through the text, we'll find the three components of this mission. At the end, we'll tie them together and get a sense of what it is we're doing here and why as we go forward as a church. Let's revisit some of the text. God gave this grace to me, Paul, least of all the people of God, that I should preach among the Gentiles the incomprehensible riches of Christ. Uh, The reason I I have incomprehensible bracketed there is in the New King James you'll find searchable. And they're trying to get a sense for what this kind of obscure word means. If you look in in Job, you'll get this word a number of times in Job, because Job's always looking at God and he's being like, God, you're totally inscrutable. I can't believe this is happening to me. And he keeps using this word over and over. And it really means, God, you're ineffable. I can't get behind the scenes. I don't understand. I just can't comprehend what you're about. And it's interesting that the way that um, God sort of shuts Job up is he points out all the things in the created order, right? He's like, look at Leviathan, and look at these eagles, and look at all. Could you have come up with this, Job? Could you have figured this out? Could you have created this? And Job is just struck with silence because, of course not. It's too wild. It's too, it's too incomprehensible. We can't get a hold of it. God is deeper and more profound than we are. And what are these riches? Well, uh, the book of Colossians and Ephesians were probably written around the same time. Paul's in jail near the end of his life. And so when we, uh, there's a number of phrases and, and things in Ephesians that are very similar to uh, phrases in Colossians. And fortunately for us, there's a point where Paul uses this word riches in Colossians, and he kind of explains what he means exactly. And so he says uh, in Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, in which... And grammatically, which there is tied to the word riches. It can't mean any other word. It's, it's, it's describing riches. Riches, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. These are the riches of God. In you. You might even hear that word temple again. God's living in this place. God, God has made you uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Coast Bible Church, a temple, and he's, he's living in you. And this is somehow riches, wealth. And not only is he living in you, he's given you the hope of a glorious future in the next life, in the kingdom of God. And if we think of this word, if we think of the church as a temple and, and Christ is in us, this is something active and real that's happening right now. Christ is alive, he's living in us. And, and this, is, this is absolutely experiential language. It's a true fact, okay? It's a true fact that Christ is here. But what makes this rich for us 
is that we get to experience what it's like to have him with us. Um, we're not traditionally a very touchy-feely church. Uh, we... Very proper. I'm wearing a tie, you notice. Um, also, Jack's wearing a tie. Thank you, Jack. Showing proper respect. I appreciate that. Uh, we, we, we're, oh, my father, tie, excellent, thank you. We, you, notice, you notice that sometimes we're a little bit formal here. We're a little bit, oh, John Mitchell, always. And, and beautifully colored as well. Thank you. Uh, you'll notice that we are a church that sometimes is a little, but, but there's something really powerful about what happens when we experience in our lives what it is that Christ is with us. And, and when we say that Christ is living in us, it means we're forgiven. And we experience that forgiveness. It means not only that we worship. We're not, just, we're not just forgiven, but we're also in this place. It's a temple. And what do you do in a temple? You worship and you experience what it is to tell God who God is. To confess the truth about God to him directly. And that is a very powerful experience. So we'd say the, it, it, to say that Christ is in us, that we have the immeasurable riches of Christ, is to say that we experience here in this place and with each other forgiveness, united worship in the church, and moreover, eternal hope. It matters to us that we know where we're going. Yesterday when we said um, our, our sort of, we didn't really say goodbye to Bob, to Grandpa, Grandpa Harrison, because it was, it's just, just a little bit longer until we're going to see him again. We have a living hope in Christ that what happens on this earth isn't the end. And when we experience that together, we have joy. There is life. Christ lives in us, this temple to God. What does this all do? Let's, let's go back to the text where he says, Paul says, we have these incomprehensible riches of Christ's experience of his forgiveness and, and unification and in that, we reveal to all the unfolding of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. Let's look a little closer at that text. You've noticed I've made some changes to the New King James here. New King James says, and make all to see the fellowship of the mystery. Um, I use the word reveal. It, it, it's kind of weird construction in Greek, but it really means illuminate or enlighten or show. Um, and so to reveal, you know, it's a mystery, and we talked a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, really, about uh, David Blaine, like, the magician on the street, and everyone's like, whoa, that's really the language that Paul's doing. God, the, the master magician, has this incredible plan laid out, and then right here in Paul's life, and in the life of this church, where the veil is being pulled back, and we're seeing the reveal once and for all of what God has done, what his plan was from the beginning, the unfolding of the, of the mystery, uh, right there, the unfolding is really, uh, it's a word uh, that we get our word from economy. It means the, like the, the administration of how it's all going to work out. It's all shown to us in Christ. What is this mystery that has been revealed? Uh, in Paul, Paul almost always uses this word exactly the same way. Like one exception in Romans. But every other time he's talking about the same thing. And it's really his shorthand for the entire plan of God. It's mysterious because before Christ came, nobody could figure out what God was up to, right? God's promise to Israel was that, you know, they would be innumerable, as many as the sand in the sea, and that everyone would come and worship Yahweh God because of the way that they lived and what they did. And that plan didn't work out. 
By the time of Christ, Israel is under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire is just the latest in a long list of oppressors, you know, from Assyria to Babylon to Egypt. And, and, and Israel, Israel is looking around saying, if God is real, then how come it's not working out the way we expect? And then, boom, Jesus appears on the scene. And suddenly, the whole plan of God, which before was mysterious and confusing, is made clear. And what really blows Paul away, Paul, good Jew, didn't eat pork, observed the Sabbath, really clean guy, what blew his mind was that in that, somehow, the Gentiles are brought in to a melting pot, and not just turned into Jews, circumcised and, you know, only pork and all the, no, just as they were, dirty, grubby, ugly us, right there at the table with Jews. For Paul, this is mind-blowing, and I think for us, it's mind-blowing too. When we welcome in someone to our community, we're like, no way, no way that person's going to be okay with us. They are just too, woo. Let's be honest, I mean, this church, I mean, how many of us are normal? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Nope. Wrong. Uh, It it really is fascinating. I I remember one time Kevin Reed uh, told me once, he was like, one thing that blows my mind about church is I go and see movies with people that I never, ever would have hung out with by my own choice if it wasn't for Coast Bible Church. (laughs) And this is the experience of every place where God lives. Because these people from all over get together and they crash into each other and they adjust to each other. Remember the wall from last week, the bricks fitting in together. It's this melting pot. And this is such a surprise that God's mystery would be revealed like this. And if you put all that together, I think you get the first thing that we can say about the mission of our melting pot temple. It's that we're to experience the joys of Christ's forgiveness and hope as a united people. It really is part of our mission to know and experience the living Christ with us, all these weirdos, together. But that's not the end, and that's actually just one of the the building blocks to getting to the big one. Let's look at the second element in the mission of the melting pot temple. Going back to verse 10. To the intent that now the beautifully complex wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the powers and authorities in the sky realms according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. You're hearing that language of intent at the very beginning there. So we we are experiencing the joys of Christ's forgiveness and hope as united people and there's a reason, there's an intent that God has for that and it's for this. Let's look at the text. You notice I've changed up there. New King James has the manifold wisdom of God. I've changed that to beautifully complex because it really is a very rare word. It's, only, it's used not very often in Greek literature. And I want to give you a sense for how it gets used. So this is manifold. The New King James meant it's polypoikolos if you care. But uh, that word in the ancient Near East, we're going we're gonna to take a little, just short look at it. Um, just a couple of examples of how it gets used in what contexts. So this is, um, this is from Euripides in 450 BC. Right there, that's what he was talking about. It's beautiful. It's, it's th- and so in his sentence, it's something like uh, the, the, manifold, the manifold colors of a scarf, right? 
And the idea being um, that you just take, and, and ancient peoples would, would die in much less sophisticated ways than we do, but still you would get many, 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 many colors, a rich variety, um, a comp- and a complicated patterns too. Um, the best designers were known for being able to dye scarves in such a way that they were able to, to intersect colors and, and, and in, a, in, a, in a very complex way. This is probably simpler for us now, but was amazing uh, in the ancient world. Another way this word gets used, this is from 350 B.C., Eubulus. He, he talks about the, the manifold colors or the manifold variety of flowers on a floral wreath um, that's worth achieving. Um, and you can think of, uh, in, in ancient Greece, they had uh, the Olympic Games, and if you won, you'd get a, a, a laurel crown. And, and the way that the, the many different flowers from all over the Greek city-states were brought in so that to represent every place was, was woven together in this incredible tapestry. And, and, and they're different, but when they're put together, they have this incredibly beautiful effect. That's manifold. That's the way this word gets used. So in the ancient Near East, manifold has a strong connotation of beauty and complexity and variety. And notice that the earth is like this. Uh, it gets used in Jewish wisdom literature to talk about the way you look at the, the world. And, and, and as we noted in Job, it's, it's wild and there's such variety. And yet it comes together in a really powerful and beautiful and compelling way. This is what the church is. This is what Paul's talking about. What's beautifully complex is this place, this people. The church is literally composed of a rich tapestry of people of different colors. Literally. And this is true not just in, in nowadays in, in the modern church, but in the ancient church. It was from the very beginning a missionary church composed of all, inclusive in ways that the ancient world never could have imagined. going on, this, this, this beautifully complex wisdom of God might be made uh, known by the church to the powers and authorities in the sky realms according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this beautifully complex wisdom of God is made known by the church. So this, the wisdom of God is to create this, it, it's many faceted, it's wild, it's exciting, and it's, it's embodied in the church. So it's made known by the church to who? Those people out there? Interestingly, no. This is the mission of the church, friends. This is what we're about. Made known to the powers and authorities in the sky realms. Look at this. Um, In New King James, you're going to get principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Principalities is just kind of an archaic word, um, and so I just changed it to to powers just for clarity's sake. Um, but really, if you think of uh, principalities as kind of like little realms of influence, little, little places where there's a prince who rules, right? That's a principality. Um, and authorities, people who are above, who have influence. If you remember a little while back, we, we also talked about the, the sky realms. And so these, these, these powers and authorities, they're the powers in the sky realms. What is uh, sky realms? Well, if you uh, look at this picture we've got um, a little bit in a few slides here. Next one. There it is, yes. Um, 
So the way that the ancients, uh, especially Greeks, uh, saw the world is, is, is like this. We're here on the earth, and you can imagine looking up, and you look up at the sky, and you notice that it's blue. The ancients uh, assumed, therefore, that there was um, some water kind of around the, wor- uh, around the earth, but the water wasn't the deep blue of the sea. It was kind of lightened, and so they assumed that beyond that was a, a realm of air, um, and it was kind of like a, it kind of encased uh, the earth, and in this air were um, powers, um, spiritual forces that were invisible to us, Right, but nevertheless had powerful influence. And these, these spiritual forces that were around us, they, they sometimes had special power, special, um, they were specially located in certain people, for example. And one of these people would be like the emperor, right? So Caesar was somebody who had like a special manifestation of uh, the influence of these sky powers. These, these, you could even use the word demon if you want. And so for Paul and for Christians, these are universally enemies. Um, they're universally, um, yeah, demons is a, is a good way to think about it. They're enemy powers that influence earthly institutions. And so in the case of Caesar, Caesar is, from the church's perspective, um, sort of influenced subtly sometimes and not so subtly sometimes to, to embody um, the, the values of, of, of a power that is not God. Now, if you, if you remember the, the picture, this is the air, right? But the air is really close to the earth, okay? And if you keep going up all the levels, all the, all the levels, the way that, that Paul talks about God is God is the one that's at the farthest at the top. God's the true king, the real guy, the real power. And even though it seems like we're kind of puppeted by these, these demons, God is the one who has the final say. Um... And yet, we experience, we experience the, the influence of these demons. This is a weird way for us to think. And so I suggest that, you know, here, in the secular, post-Christian West, instead of thinking of powers in the sky realm, I suggest we try to use the word culture. Okay? Um, as in corporate culture. Right? Like Google has a culture. And think about how this might work, right? We, we don't think of, you know, whoever runs Google, Sergey something. We don't think of him as being under the control of, like, demons, typically. But we do notice that Google, <laughs> maybe, but we, we, do, we do notice that Google as a company, as a corporation, as an institution, has certain values and, and does certain things and goes certain places, right? And not just Google. Maybe um, Iraq, the country, right? We might think of the country of Iraq as, as being a kind of institution, having its own culture, right? And how interesting was it that um, in the last 10 years, it was assumed at the very beginning that, that if we just came in and gave them a constitution, that their culture would change. And it didn't. A little bit, but it was very strong, very resilient, despite the, the wreckage of, of war and, and, and a new, a new uh, constitution. And it's almost as if, almost as if, Institutions, human institutions, have a kind of strength, resilience, power that may not be just describable in terms of people and intentions. In fact, the way Paul thinks about institutions is he thinks that there are powers that we can't see and we can't describe, and that they're in institutions, and they change them and move them. 
And it's interesting the way that the, these demons or powers do this. They, they do it by flattening, by making uniform. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed this? If you're a part of an institution for any length of time, you end up looking like the people around you. And you take on a particular culture. You have to to survive in an institution. It, it becomes ingrained in you. And interestingly, the way that these institutions tend to work is they tend to flatten out all the edges and all the, the weirdnesses of people. They, they smooth them out, get rid of them, so that everyone kind of ends up looking a little bit the same. Even, even in the United States we, and really the West, we have uh, uh, the youth culture and, and we have um, rebellion culture. But isn't it funny? Isn't it funny that all the punks dress exactly the same? Isn't that weird? Do you ever stop and like, you've all got a spiked collar and like a, you know, sleeve of tattoos and spike, really? That's creative? Isn't that weird? Why is that? Why is it that even in a culture that is defined by rebelling against authority, there is an internal uniformity to it? Paul thinks because Everything we experience as human beings is ultimately influenced by forces we can't see. And what he sees the church as doing is exposing to these powers the real wisdom of God in all of its beautiful complexity, all of its vibrancy, all of its difference and differentiation. A people, the church, not defined by the clothes they wear, not defined by where they come from, how much money they have, who they find sexually attractive. Any of the world's markers for identity don't matter here. You're not just this group. No, you are conformed to Christ who incorporates all groups regardless of where you come from. The powers of the world do not understand this. In fact, the powers of the world are terrified by this. There is nothing more terrifying to the demons and the invisible forces that run the world than that there, that there could be a place. There could be a place that does not erase our differences and yet incorporates them and still conforms to the image of Christ. That there could be a place that truly is vibrant without being uniform. You talk about a counterculture. Paul says the church is the counterculture and always has been. Think about every so-called advance of the counterculture in Western civilization, civil rights and all the different... Where did it all come from? The vision of God promulgated by the church. The church is the one who said, we welcome. The church is the place that said, we will learn to get along. The church is the place that said, God has called us to be this, to frighten you, to shake you in your boots, powers. Powers in your minions. Every time you see the church being alive, being vibrant, being true to herself, conformed to Christ, and yet incorporating all kinds of different people, you are put on notice. Your day is up. You will not last. Despite how powerful you may be right now, powers in the sky realms, your day is coming and you will not survive it. God has intersected, has invaded this place, and he has shown what real life looks like. We, friends, are the revolution. We are the counterculture. And our existence is an offense to the powers that be. Because every time they look at us, they remember that their day is coming. 
This is the second element of the mission of the church, the melting pot temple, to put the powers and their minions on notice that their day is up. Verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my sufferings for you because they are your glory. Boldness and access with confidence. In Christ, in whom? In Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith to God. Let me ask you something about the way the world works, the way institutions work. When Caesar, when Caesar, you know, he's under the influence of, of some force or whatever, and someone approaches Caesar, how do they approach him? Oh, don't hurt me, Caesar. Please. Because what Caesar likes is he likes people on their knees before him. Now remember, Caesar, you know, he's, he's got some help from his little demon or whatever in the Sky Realm. Remember, remember God, God is way up at the top. God is King of kings, Lord of lords, Yahweh creator, the biggest and best king, the one who created all things. And this is how his people approach him. Not quaking in our boots, but with boldness and access, with confidence, the way that you approach a friend. This is how we approach the King of Kings as friends. This terrifies, again, the powers that be. Powerful preach, uh, people and, and, the, and the, the creatures, the demonic forces that encourage and create them, they operate in hierarchies, they operate in oppression, and yet the church calls Yahweh God friend, Abba, Daddy. Our worship of the Most High God terrifies the enemy. Every time we pray in this place, we do it knowing that God hears and loves us. This scares the enemy to no end. And this is part of our mission in the Melting Pot Temple to demonstrate true friendship with God. Our worship, our prayers demonstrate true friendship with the highest God. We experience the joys of Christ's forgiveness and hope as united people, and, and we really, as, as a church, need to, to emphasize that it matters and, and, and really internalize the experiences of forgiveness and hope and worship as a people who are weird and yet one. We put the powers and their minions on notice that their day is up. We demonstrate true friendship with the one God of the universe. That's what we're called to do. But look out. Because if you do, this is what's going to happen. in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I, Paul, ask that you, Ephesians, don't get discouraged. 
by my sufferings for you because they are your glory. When the church is the church, somebody is going to get hurt. In this case, it's Paul. Because the Ephesian Christians were living this life out. They were doing it. They were... um, they were an offense to the powers. The, the local governments were freaked out. The local businesses were freaked out. Everyone was freaked out. The demons that were influencing them, freaked out. And so the powers did what the powers do. And they looked for a target, a scapegoat, and tried to hurt it. In this case, Paul. They put him in prison. And Paul says, when I went to prison, that's your glory. That shows that you're doing it. Because you're scaring the ones who need to be a little bit frightened. You put the powers on notice, and so they had to lash out because they know their end is nigh. And they hurt me. You know what? I can take it. Paul says this over and over again. He's like, bring it. I've got the power of Christ living in me. I am not afraid of what they're going to do to me. They can crucify my body if they'd like. That does not change what's going to happen to me. I have eternal hope. I have the joy of this community. I know what real life is like. I can take it. And every time they do it, know that that is a sign that you are living out your mission. You are being true to God's call. This is your glory. The melting pot temple mission is to destabilize. It's to upset. It's to expose the enemy to the beautifully complex wisdom of God that is made real in us. Sounds nice on a note sheet. not as nice when it gets done the church is built on the blood of martyrs and that's because when we are who we are called to be there will be martyrs but that is why we must hold fast to our hope of glory because when the going gets tough it is only the sure knowledge that God has sealed us for eternal kingdom and eternal glory. It is only that that can carry us through. And in that, we can take joy in the fact that the powers are scared and that we're doing what we are called to do. That's our mission, friends. That is the theology of the church, to be that and to shake things up. And let's think about that as a community. What are we going to do to start shaking things up a little bit? How are we going to be these things we were called to be? How are we actually going to be this community, right, that experiences the joy of Christ's forgiveness as a united people? What do we need to do to be more united? What do we need to do to, to really experience again in a fresh way some of that, some of that first experience we had when we, when we were saved? What do we got to do to do that? We are, we are called, this is our mission, to experience the joys of Christ's forgiveness and hope as a united people. What do we have to do? What is it that we have to do? What attitudes do we have to take where we are putting the powers on notice? Saying, nope, the way you run things isn't working anymore. It's over. 
What is it that we have to do? What kind of, of tenor, what kind of worship, what kind of prayer do we have to have? So we're demonstrating genuine friendship with Most High God. A friendship the world doesn't understand. These are the questions that, honestly, the, uh, the elders and staff were thinking about right now. We're coming up with different ways that we can be this more. It's a, a last thing. Bible, grace, family. These are our core values, right? And you can see them in that list. Marilyn, if you wouldn't mind bringing up the mission of the melting pot temple, um, the, uh, the um, one, two, three uh, slide, experience the joys of Christ's forgiveness and hope as a united people, powers and minions on notice. If you look at this, if you look at this, you can see where de- we're defending the truth of Scripture. Yeah, that's going to freak out the enemy. Demonstrating true friendship with God and, and gracious and heartfelt worship, that's going to terrify people who cl- crave your allegiance. Being united as a people, really embracing that sense of family and finding ways to really increase it, that is going to destroy the enemy's hold. Our core values and us living them out is the way that this church is going to be the church of Jesus Christ as we were called and given a mission to be. And I invite you, as we move forward through the summer and into the fall, as we develop new ways of doing that, that you come with and and participate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this melting pot temple, this weird and wild place, this place that doesn't crush difference, but instead blends it together in conformity to your son, in true worship to you. We pray that we will again experience the joys of Christ's forgiveness and hope that will put the enemy, the powers, their minions on notice that their end is nigh and that we will do so always demonstrating joyous, loving friendship with you. We are yours and in your name we pray. Amen.